years ago, I was practicing at City Center and my teacher, Paul Haller, um, decided he wanted to do a, a workshop with this guy named Bill Zemsky, who is a um, who at the time was a Rinzai Zen teacher in San Francisco and also a kendo master. So, um, uh, which is Japanese sword form, basically. Um, and so martial artist and, and Rinzai Zen teacher. And he came in and, and did this workshop that was essentially all about uh, about breath work and development of the hara, right? That's, and, and that's something that they do in in uh, in martial arts, and it's something that they do in uh, particularly in Rinzai practice. But also, interestingly, if you go if, if you practice with a Soto Zen teacher intensively, eventually you'll start seeing that the that this this breath stuff is important and. The, Bill Zemsky explained it this way. He said, this stuff goes back way before Buddhism, right? It, it predates Buddhism by probably by thousands of years. It also predates, it's, it's, a, it's a set of breath techniques that were also adopted by the yoga schools to, um, around the same time that, um, that, that the Buddha, you know, was, was becoming the Buddha. There was also the development of, um, a bunch of yogic schools, and and I think that's roughly when the Yoga Sutra was written by Patanjali, right? So, and the these breath practices are also part of the yoga the yogic traditions. And um, he he said this really amazing thing, like which I've I've gotten the opportunity to test out um, since, and that is if you go to almost any temple, uh, Buddhist temple, particularly Zen temple, but not just Zen temple in Asia. So that also, well, that, so that mostly includes, you know, China, Vietnam, Japan, etc. right? So you go to, go to Korea, go to a temple, and almost always at the gate, there are these guardian figures, right? And, and one of them is doing this, and the other one is doing this. And what they're doing is they're doing this breathing. Right? And it's kind of a it's kind of a visual pun. It's like the breath is the gateway to this practice, basically. Right. Um, and so it's it's a it's a very old practice, the the breath practice. And the focus on the on the hara is, I mean. So the, the yoga schools have a have a sort of a richer set of, of body of centers of energy in the body that they ask you to focus on. The, there's the throat, there's the 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 kind of you know muscles in your pelvic floor, sort of perineal muscles and so on. There's your there's the hara, which is you know sort of down here below your navel, but also you uh, the the some yoga schools identify a bunch of other centers including um well i was hitting a little bit this, at this with the thing of the breath coming up the head and to, up, up the back and landing here 
the the um sort of you know the sort of crown of your head and so on and and there's a lot of yoga practice that involves um focusing on and noticing the way your practice is affected by both breathing into and breathing out of those parts of you know those centers in your body right but but in in zazen the main center that you work with is the hara um, and the main focus of your breath is the hara and also what you notice is this i, I think if you there's there's a dynamic that people fall into almost invariably when they're learning how to sit and you know and not just when they're learning how to sit but over the course of a the early part of a of a sort of life and practice where um you're instructed to pay attention to your breathing right and invariably that attention slides into control and out and back in and there's this sort of weird almost it can even be kind of a struggle between um between awareness and control with the breath and some people actually have a lot of trouble with it not everybody but some people actually their breath feels constricted and it's difficult to breathe and so on because they're because of that particular dynamic and struggle right and so one of the things that you can do is you can use this hara technique if you can breathe in such a way that mostly you feel like you're breathing um into your hara when you breathe in and sort of out of your hara when you breathe out and your if your focus can be right there on the middle of your body it's a lot easier to just have the breath be kind of natural and to recognize that that even if you think you're controlling it, no one is really controlling it. So here's what I thought I'd talk about. Um, one of the things that gets associated with um, with New Year's, since we're you know we're at New Year's, is um, let me click on that. There we go. Is the idea of a New Year's resolution, right? and oddly enough new year's resolutions you'd you'd think they'd be a, a universally laudable and lauded um uh activity right like so someone someone is examining their life and using the the um occasion of the new year as a as a sort of springboard for imagining what what their life would be you know what what a what a improved version of the life of their life or a an improved version of their self might be and at some point you know and i'm not sure exactly when i mean i i guess you usually make new year's resolutions on new year's eve right at some point in new year's eve you go well in the new year i will X, where X is something that that um, that the, the the person who's making the resolution, the resolver, um, has decided will will lead to an improved life or an improved self. Right? Um, 
and and interestingly enough, the 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 discourse around New Year's resolutions in at least in you know the press and um, you know novels and so on and so forth is that they almost never work, right? And that they're they're sort of a they're they're sort of a setup to uh, to fail. Um, and that you know, you you if you vow to you know spend more time at the gym, um, then after about five weeks, um, you're not really spending a lot of time that much time at the gym, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and I I think it's I think it's worth examining why, and and I, I guess the 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 contrast I'd hold up is that, you know, in in this culture, we're not a culture for the most part of vow makers, right? You know, like there are some vows that people take, like the the um, the Hippocratic oath, right? That's a vow, and and it's a good one. It's a really good one, actually, right? And also marriage vows, people um, people do that, and there's a few other places where people make vows, but um, generally speaking, there's not a lot of vowing going on. Um, and and the, the closest, in some ways, the closest a lot of people get to making vows on a regular basis is New Year's resolutions, right? Um, you know, by contrast, um, Buddhism is full of vows, <laughs> so the, the 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 most obvious cases are um, the 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 um, refuges, right? Um, so uh, from the very beginning, people have said, "I, you know, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Saga." It's a kind of it's a kind of a vow that says, "I." I let go and I, I vow to completely inhabit and be connected with, um, you know, Buddha in the sense of both the historical Buddha and the, the mind of awake living, right? Of Dharma, the teachings, and also um, the, you know, kind of the whole world and all the, um, all the things in it. And Sangha, you know, which strictly um, strictly constructed means the community of practitioners, but actually um, it's pretty easy to see how in some ways it, it means community in, the, in whatever the largest possible sense you can imagine is, right? Um, so that's that's the first one, and then on top of that, the um, the people, you know, both lay people and monks who who become Buddhist uh, swear to abide by the precepts. And there's a there's a um, there's a number of different sets of precepts. It includes a, a, a vinaya from the um, from the Theravadan schools, it's actually has quite a lot of vows in it, 150-ish or something like that. And there, there are other versions of it that are even longer. The, the 
the precepts that um, that in the in most Mahayana schools, or at least Chinese Mahayana schools, and and by extension, uh, Zen, the 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 precepts that you take there are uh, there's roughly there's thirteen of them, right? And they're they're sort of a nested set, right? Um, and in there, the the simplest form of them is the first three are well. The way they're usually translated are: um, I vow to avoid evil actions. I vow to um, uh, to do all the good that I can possibly do, and I vow to um, well. Sometimes it's translated as free all beings, but it's more like live in mindful and wholehearted interconnection with all beings um so and then then you then you say then you say okay i've I've vowed that right and then the next 10 are are just the details on how how that could possibly go wrong right Um, they're the 10 ways in which people are most likely to mess that up, so they include, you know, not um, not killing, not stealing, not um, not lying, not not engaging in sexual misconduct, and then um, and then a, a lot of the ones at the end are are sort of detailed descriptions of the various ways in which people make errors in 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 a social context so um harboring ill will towards each other praising themselves at the expense of others and all the rest of it. so there's a there's a list of 10 things that everyone decided were the ways you're most likely to mess up and they list those and that's it right um and you if you, I mean, if you've been, if you've been ordained, and so, and I've gone essentially through three ordinations, as I was saying earlier, right? Uh, if you're ordained, then um, you've taken, you've taken those same vows three times, right? Um, if, you know, if I, I will, I, I've taken those vows three times, you, you, you essentially take them every time you get ordained. Uh, so if you go through levels of ordination, you take them, right? And the interesting thing that happens in each one of those ordination ceremonies is that something about the the nature and the request of living this particular life, this life uh, where you vow to, you know, um, to live well and comfortably and skillfully with the human condition, right? Which is what what it's all about. Um, Something about that process and practice moves closer to the middle of your life in in a way that's completely mysterious. And and that uh, that is is always unexpected. And every every time I've done it, the extent and um, nature of that, of that, transformation has surprised me which is nice it's good right um 
so you know i again you know from the point of view of new year's resolutions um none of this means that i i never mess up or that i always hold in an ironclad way to those vows it, that's not how it is but um but it does have a powerful effect on your life right um so i thought that the the good question might be well you know what would say Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, have to say about um, New Year's resolutions. Like, how could you, how could you have your your the vows that you take, you know, at the beginning of the year for completely laudable reasons? Generally, right? Like, um, I want to have, I want to live a better life. I want to be a better person. I want to be healthier, happier, etc. Right? All of those things. Um, what what would it take to um have those things be not exactly successful i don't think it's a it, it's it's um it's about success but have them be fruitful and and have the exploration that comes from having taken that vow be fruitful um and so and so you know suzuki roshi and um and 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 the previous Zen teachers that he was inspired by have had a lot to say about exactly that because it turns out that that that's that's the in some ways the essence of practice is how to how to live the vows that you made such that they're fruitful they and that they are and in some ways transformational right um, and the first the first thing that Suzuki Roshi says in, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is he says, you know, there's this idea that, that practice is hard, right? Um, that this practice is hard. Um, but there's, there's a bit of confusion about exactly why it's hard. Um, and, he, and, and he says, he gives a couple of examples, but basically what he says is that what's hard about it is not that anything in particular about say zazen practice is difficult right or even um having you know you you know like transforming your mind through zazen or having these experiences of being awake none of that stuff is is actually all that difficult what's difficult is that um our human tendency to um second guess to to pass judgment to um to to you know say you say you've you've held you've you've conceived a vision of what it would be like for you to live a better life to to and you've and you're pursuing that right to 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 both, to constantly be asking, wait, are we there yet? And also, wait, are you doing this right? Or, and, and, to, and to when, as, as life moves on and you move in the direction of that, um, 
of that vision to go, wait, this isn't what I had in mind at all, right? The, so the, the struggle gets set up um, that arises just out of our kind of our human predilections and, and, uh, and the human condition in general that makes that what should be a sort of, you know, enjoyable and fruitful process makes that process more difficult. Um, and the mind, the, and, and so the, the first lesson there is that, that living with a vow is a matter of continuous practice. You can't just make the vow and then put it in your pocket and, and walk out the door and live your life. It's a matter of, of continually reconnecting with the vow. It's a continuous practice. And the second part is that it depends on a certain kind of, of frame of mind. And the frame of mind that it depends on is a mind that's, um, that's curious, non-judgmental, and, um, and compassionate. Right. That that allows the world to be as it is. That's that's empa both empathic to others and and compassionate with the self, and that's deeply curious about um, about the actual nature of reality and and one's experience in it. And if you can carry that mind with you, then the the continuous practice of living with a vow is almost always fruitful, right? It allows you to stay close to the, the essence of the vow rather than the, the trappings of it, right? It allows you to, um, to, to see the way that that vow produces struggle and to let go when you're struggling, right? And, and, and it allows you to, to, to contain the, the kind of mental activity that, that I was talking about, the judgment, the second guessing and so on in a, in a, um, in a kind of framework that defangs it a little bit, that makes it less problematic, that sort of lets it settle into, into uh, its natural place in the whole picture of being human, right? something like that. Um, so, I guess the summing it up, it's not necessarily so much about the nature of the vow. It's about the practice of, of living with it and, and staying close to it. And I, I guess the, the last thing I'd say about it is this, don't be too sure you actually understand what it would be, what it would be to realize that vow. Um, we, we, one of the things that, one of the ways we most consistently get in our way is drawing a conclusion and deciding that, that the, that whatever's going on now doesn't match that conclusion. The, it's, it turns out that, that our 
senses a sense of understanding and control in life are largely illusory, right? So to let to let life and the things in it speak with their own voice and and assert themselves rather than um, going around and categorizing and describing them and drawing conclusions from that is probably the best way to live with your vow.